Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ian, are you ready for a bearded, completely unnecessary podcast? For Wednesday, back on Wednesday, April 12, 2017, we're both hairy and straggly beard and, and looking long on the tooth. It's time to retire almost. Yeah. Ian, how you doing? Uh... I'm okay. We're going to be talking about some other stuff on this show besides Ian's failing health. We're talking about the YouTube ad uh, controversy, advertiser controversy, and a follow-up. We're going to also be talking about the 20-year anniversary of Nesticle. I can't believe that. We'll be talking about the Nintendo Direct, maybe a scumbag seller of the week, uh, maybe other topics that Ian will be around for. We'll see. Mm. And maybe a Q&A I'll probably do by myself. So, Ian, what's been going on besides you being okay? Uh... I had a really bad sinus cold over the weekend. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, there you go. You know, on top of... Eat, well, eating pity party time. Uh, okay. uh, no, no. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it, it's just one of those things. I did my taxes. Oh, I, I'm waiting to get the, get that back from my, my tax guy, Murray. I'm holy, waiting on that. That's going to be a fun time. Holy shit, did I get hosed. <laughs> hey, you know what the deal is. No, no. It was, it was, it was you know, I had the money set aside and then sickness came and oh. all that money went away. <laughs> well, you can always prepay too during the year. You can send money to the IRS website. Yeah. No, it's it's not so bad. Um, oh, mine's going to be bad. <laughs> I'm not, I was like, oh, I got this much money. I can do this with this. And I'm like, nope. I got to wait a little bit now. Uh, That's okay. Uh, unfortunately, I had to cancel the, the trip to Retrospilmessen. So, In Norway? Yeah. So that's sad. Um, I'll be there, though. And I'll be there, what is that, May 19th? What is it? Keep going. <laughs> but uh, I've been playing a lot of MLB The Show. This has been my uh, new distraction uh, when, I, when I'm sick and I can't do anything on the days off uh, as I play online leagues with my buddies. And uh, I, I'm, I'm uh, last league, uh, I lost straight across the board with the uh, Blue Jays. <clears throat> why, why the Blue Jays? Because uh, they're from Toronto and I like their logo. You have to, of course, you have to choose the only Canadian team. You gotta, you gotta do that to our pastime. Retro Spill Nelson is May 20 to 21st in Sandefjord, Norway. I am returning. I'll be there with guys like, uh, Norman Caruso, the gaming historian. Uh, I'll, uh, I think Brennan Floss will be there. Uh, Gerard the Completionist will be there. Um, Jay will be there. Jay from the Game Chasers will be there. That's right. He's returning. It'll be fine. It'll be fun. It's, it's a great time if you're in the uh, Norwegian area or the greater, I guess, Scandinavian area. Check it out. You know, retrospilmessen.no. And uh, new, flea mar- <laughs> new flea, mar- flea market madness is out. Uh, I still have a lot in the can. I'm dreading editing them just to see, like, the, the fines just, you know, just evaporate month by month. It's been very interesting. Oh, I forgot the, the one major announcement that I wanted to make. Uh, Pat and I are starting a cooking show. I don't know if that's official or not. <laughs> You, you have your own YouTube channel. We can do that. I just wanted to see your face right after you said you have a lot in the pipeline. 
We can do that. We can have one stationary camera and then one for covers and one person following us. And Ronnie around. thinks it would be the most adorable thing in the world. Adorable? Sure. That's that's one word you can use to describe it if you could. <laughs> Ian, have you heard about the Not So Common podcast with Pat Country? I have. I'm waiting to be invited. You really want to be on, interviewed on the secondary? We can talk about your times uh, growing up in, in Buffalo, going to high school. Yeah. Uh, your, 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 uh, I almost said waitressing days. Your waiting days. <laughs> You know, waitressing, that's fine, too. <laughs> in, in Buffalo. And believe it or not, Ian, the ultimate game guide for NES app is updated to 1.2 now for both Android and iOS. <laughs> which means it's just about oh. it's just about where I want it to be. So go to droid.ultimatenes.com for Android or iOS.ultimatenes.com for the finest NES app out there out of the three or four that exist. I'm happy about that. I'm happy for you. <laughs> Are you? I am. Um, so, Ian. So, Pat. YouTube is, 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 is over, according to a lot of people. The advertisers are pulling out. Google's running around with their hair on fire. You know, Google's like a collective person. It's like a giant. I'd rather be getting my teeth pulled right now. <laughs> you can't say you're not interested in talking about the topic before we're talking about the topic. <laughs> But, um, you know, there's a good update here. When we spoke about it originally, I always thought it was good that these issues are coming to light about advertisers being concerned about where their ads are being placed, because eventually this is going to happen. Yes. I'm surprised it took this long into ads ads being on, on uh, YouTube, which is like eight years yeah. at this point. So it's here. Google's responded in a positive way, giving more control to advertisers. So that's good. Uh, they updated their ad policies, and they also updated... Um, their sort of, I guess, minimum views per channel in order to place ads even to begin with. To sort of, to sort of verify as well. This is, yes, this is what I like about this. And people um, are all up in arms about this for absolutely no fucking... It's censorship! Well, I, I, I'm, I'm, first I'm going to touch on the, 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 um, the, the monetization thing. Because it leads right into uh, what I wanted to say and kind of what you were going to say. Um, so you cannot receive ads or be monetized now until you have a total amount of 10,000 views on your channel. Yes. So lifetime views. And that's for new channels starting, I think, your grandfathered in. You are grandfathered in, but yes, for starting for new channels. The people who complained about this, I don't think... I mean... Not making any goddamn money if you're if you have less than ten thousand views on 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 your lifetime channel. Ten, anyways, ten thousand views if you want to be generous is probably worth a maximum of twenty dollars. Probably closer to ten to fifteen. Congratulations, you got yourself two burritos so, and a six pack of shit beer. So you're you basically lost nothing if that's why you think you're uploading videos to get to ten dollars. That's you're you're hustling backwards. It's not worth your time. Right. Um. But I think the 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 more important thing here is once you reach that ten thousand, this is a very good way for YouTube to nip potential advertising problems in the bud. Because then once you hit that ten thousand, now YouTube basically gets to quick review your channel, see what your content is, and decide whether or not this is something that is going to be advertiser friendly. Yes. 
And I think that's a very smart move if they need to, um, well, they, they absolutely do need to keep their advertisers in mind. And, uh, well, not this is, that. this is, this is an easy way to do it because there's a gate now that these people have there's to a, get through. There's a small gate and I'd argue they could even increase it and I wouldn't care. Most people, they put it 25,000 or 30,000. If you put or any effort into it, you can get 10,000 views. Sure. Or, 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 or even if you never get there again, you haven't lost anything of literally of value. Right. But what's also important about this is think about how many channels are, are out there that don't have 10,000 views that get ads, because now anyone get ads on. Right. In the past. So everyone else's CPM is lower because the ads are being distributed over so many more channels that honestly, you know, if you have a channel out there and you're getting two views per video, advertisers don't want to advertise uh, on you. They'd rather go somewhere else. You know, it's just the way it is. Correct. So the ads that would have been on these small startup channels are now going to be filled to larger channels. And again, 10,000 isn't even that small. It's a drop in the bucket. It's just that you flesh out all these beginner channels that could be awful. It could be like fucking ISIS uploading videos. You don't know who's going to be uploading videos. It could be awful content. Or just dead channels that someone started and never did anything with that are somehow still getting ads fed Which, to them. The whole point is that the, it makes the the ad sharing uh, I guess uh, sh- fresher for everyone. Uh, it keeps it. It keeps the ad ecosystem, I think, going a little bit more pure, and I think advertisers would feel confident that they know that okay, you're not just uh, letting ads put on any because any asshole can create an account on YouTube in five minutes. All you need is an email address, and so it's at least some protection. And I haven't really seen anyone say this is uh, not reasonable. If anything, I saw people say, yeah, it, sh- it should be a higher. Put it like I said, put it thirty, forty, fifty. I, and I don't think people would complain that much. But the other big big news is that, and again, this happened within like a week and a half. So Google, they should have been on this track. It, it, it sometimes just takes sort of like a kick in the ass to, to get this stuff going. So Google's parent company is Alphabet. They changed the name. So they implemented a new algorithm in order to weed out bad content. And it's already, it looks like um, they've flagged five times as many videos as too offensive for ads in recent weeks versus weeks before. Right. So this is, uh, this is important. Uh, it's a new system that lets outside firms verify ad quality standards on its video service while expanding its definitions of offensive content. Uh, so, you want to speak to this? Uh, yeah, so, let me pull this. It's an artific- there's a whole list. Yeah, it's an artificial intelligence tools that they're now going to be using for the entirety of YouTube with uh, basically a, a learning form of AI that hopefully doesn't take over the world and nuke us because uh, a lot of YouTubers deserve to be nuked. Um, <laughs> so what's interesting though is that this existed. Like like Alphabet slash Google had this, but they never used it. They never implemented it on for YouTube videos before. So are we talking about the, the sensitive content options that they can choose? I'm talking about the, the AI they're now using, too. Oh, okay. In order to filter out some of this garbage content. All right. The AI was not something that I'm particular. I, that was over my head. But looking at the solution, like they were saying, there was a three-pronged approach to it. And there are options that um, the advertisers can kind of select to more focused target where their ads are going. so That's on the advertiser side. I was talking about what's on Google side oh, okay. to get rid of the bad content. You go with Google side and then I'll go sure. on advertiser so, side. So like I said, it's, again, it's, it's a machine learning technology that they're just implementing now. You know, go out, you know, I can't imagine how many uh, trillions of, of gigs 
of YouTube videos, but just start crawling through these videos and, and start flagging the bad ones at unmouse. And obviously, if you get flagged for something that shouldn't be monetized, you can then appeal. I had one video uh, flagged where it said, "This is uh, when I talked about the the anti-Semitic PewDiePie uh, vi- uh, jokes." That got flagged, saying this is not advertiser friendly. I appealed, and within a day, it was saying, "Okay, this is fine." So they're gonna they're gonna go through and start doing that. Probably as stuff is uploaded based upon keywords or SEO, uh, probably description and things of that nature. Uh, if it can actually gauge the actual content, then that's scary Skynet territory. Where, like, if it actually can tell from the video content if it's offensive or not. I don't want to go there, and I, I don't think that's what this is at this point. Uh, it might be the daytime extra maximum strength mucinex, but that, yeah, that's, that's blowing your mind. That's blowing my mind. <laughs> um, on the advertiser side, there's a number of ways that they can uh, direct this as well. Um, there's sensitive content options and sensitive subjects that they can use to uh, weed out display network ads and video ads from targeting certain things such as um, crime police and emergency type videos police blotters, news stories, death and tragedy, military and international conflicts, juvenile gross and bizarre content like jokes, weird pictures videos of stunts I'm assuming that means pranks Profanity and rough language and sexually suggestive content. Um, Sensitive subjects like sensitive social issues, tragedy, and conflict if they don't want to monetize off of that. Uh, Profanity and rough language, uh, sexually suggestive content, and sensational and shocking. Um, uh, So it's giving advertisers the tools they didn't have before to at least say, okay, I I prefer we don't put our ads for macaroni and cheese in in front of, you know... uh, a a a video about Syrian uh, chemical warfare, right? You know, like that's something we don't want associated with our our Velveeta uh, shells and, and cheese. Yeah, we don't want to, you know, put a an ad involving a loving couple in front of, uh, you know, uh, sexually suggestive content that might be, uh, you know, about sex crimes or something like that. Sure. So. Um, it's allowing a lot more control on the end of the advertisers as well, and I think uh, it's a it's a pretty good start as long as it all works out. This is only good because this gives advertisers confidence to come back and then confidence to spend more money. If they know their money is going more towards where they are directing it to go, they are more likely to pump in more dollars. In the long run, this is a huge win for Google, and that's how it's being analyzed on, on, on financial websites. Yes, they might have had the short-term loss of you know a few weeks of these advertisers pulling out, but in the long run, this is what you needed. This is how it should have evolved. And you can get on uh, saying, well, you're going to be censoring out uh, if you don't want, you know, the political, I've seen stuff like, oh, no, the, the, the political talk shows aren't getting ads. I've heard that, too, from both. I've seen uh, conservative uh, YouTubers say, I'm not getting ads displayed. I've seen a liberal one. Then other people say, I see the ads, they're back. It could have been temporary. The bottom line is this. If advertisers don't want to spend with you, they don't want to spend with you. Yeah. And you can't force them to. That's just capitalism. But it is, though. Capitalism. If people don't want to uh put ads in front of the CU podcast because they hate us having beards and looking this devilishly handsome, <laughs> then that's their prerogative. And then, you know, you can be supported elsewhere. Uh, people are... Uh, Patreon is is becoming greater and greater. But I think in the, this is what... is the, This is a natural progression. You Will you see certain genres die out? 
Thank God, probably yes. yes. I can't see how, like, if I'm selling cars, I, I'm selling the freaking new Honda Accord, I want that ad in front of a, a fucking prank invasion video, yeah. for example. So if, if some genres die out that are mindless, that got away with getting money from advertisers, where the audience wasn't going to... People watching Prank Invasion aren't buying fucking Lexuses, you know? So, like, it's just a waste of the advertiser's dollar. So I'm all for this. I don't. I don't really see a negative at this point, unless you try to say that. Well, they're going to not show ads in front of you know people that w- with this political slant or that political slant. Let's get there first, and we can address that if that happens. happens. But in but in terms of uh, websites uh, and blogs that have political slants, they get advertisers. So you can you'll still have advertisers come over to that probably. It may not be the same advertiser, but it might happen. But well, we're not there yet. I mean, Christ, look at fucking cable news networks with political slants. Sure. CNN gets advertisers. Fox News gets advertisers. I mean, what? it, it should be no different for YouTube with, with political slants. What we can get into if we transition to another topic is that business works upon will I make money or not? Is this a smart decision where I'm going to make money? Advertisers will continue... To go to YouTube because that's where the young people are. They grow up. That's their new form of entertainment. That's the new "quote unquote" TV. They're not gonna. They're not gonna stay away from it. This you could have said this was leverage for them to to get a better deal to say, well, your ads aren't worth as much as "quote unquote" a legacy or the mainstream or old school media, you know. But I really think this is. This is they were concerned, and I don't. I don't see that they should not have been. Because if I'm spending $200,000 out of clip on advertising and it shows up on shit content that I don't want, that's a huge problem. It's not like these companies are just have money to burn all the time and then it doesn't affect their bottom line. It does. Yeah. Which leads us to another topic, Ian. Yes, it does. One that I believe you're leading off on. So, a video came out from H3H3, Ethan Klein. We've covered uh, Ethan before. Uh, and mostly positive light. Yes, uh, he he did the good work uh, to to help uncover the fucking asshole Counter Strike fucking CS:GO skin uh, fucking underground mafia asshole scam fucks. Uh, we we both uh, charred the asses of the uh, the pranksters uh, as well. The pranksters, and then I think there was also the FUPA thing where the the defense the legal defense fund. Yeah, he helped get going, and there could have been one other one. Um, that's come up where Ethan has done a good job uh, highlighting some of these issues. Uh, maybe the maybe um, the freaking uh, people that try to copyright the genre of video, the React videos, the fine. The oh fine yeah, I think he might have done something for that too. So he's been around. So, but but this was a misfire. We'll just say from H three H three. So what definitely ha- a uh, case of <clears throat> shooting first and act- asking questions later backfiring. So what happened was, there was a report from you know the Wall Street Journal, uh, and the Wall Street Journal has has been in the news because of the PewDiePie situation. Right. And they shed a light on 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 all the the litany of, of jokes and sort of questionable content that was at the time kid friendly advertising, believe it or not. And so people were already on this Wall Street Journal being bad guys sort of syndrome before all this happened. But then Wall Street Journal started to go around and started looking at questionable videos and seeing if advertisers uh, ads were running on them. And they found one with a, a very uh, negative title, I'll just say. Uh, I feel like we're on a carousel here. <laughs> a carousel of topics? Yeah. So they found one, a video that shouldn't have had a Coca-Cola ad being placed on it. It was a Coke ad. 
So from that, the timing's a little bit skewed about what happened where, but soon that was like right before these advertisers started pulling out on Moss, saying we're gonna we're just this we don't trust what's going on uh, with YouTube now. So people blamed the Wall Street Journal for sort of starting this or helping to fan the flames of these advertisers being concerned because you know they you know they, hey they ran a story Coke finds out Coke's probably like what the hell's going on. So what Ethan H3H3 then looked into was the actual video itself and he contacted the person who ran it he said hey are you running ads on are ads running on this video are you making money off this video and the person running the youtube channel looked at his analytics sent a screenshot and said oh no i haven't made you know money on this video since last year i've made nothing so from that bit of information h3h3 then comes out and said the wall street journal fabricated the entire story no fabricated the screenshot oh sure Fabricating the screenshot created a screenshot. Oh, therefore, you'd be fabricating a story. Well, but, sure. <laughs> but but what? At first, the internet went nuts. Twitter went nuts. YouTubers, uh, people I like, like Review Tech USA. Uh, I saw tweets from people like Peanut Butter Gamer saying, "You have to lot. You have a lot to answer for Wall Street Journal and the guy who wrote the article. You have a lot to answer for. This is fucking who bullshit. also co-wrote the PewDiePie article. This is fucking bullshit. I hope Google sues you." This is ridiculous. Fucking mob. Because now they they see this war. They see a war between the quote-unquote mainstream media and the YouTubers and their button heads for that same dollar. And I'll tell you in a second why that's a dumb argument. But that's what happened. What's interesting is that Ethan uploaded an apology hours later, but... The the shot was already fired, and oh, the the, the the blood was in the water for especially because it being the Wall Street Journal and a YouTube story, YouTube versus Wall Street Journal at this point was was too hot. Sure. So why did he upload that uh, the apology? I'm asking you, Ian. I'll tell you why, Ian. He uploaded <laughs> it. Are you out of it? Because it turns out on that video. The ad, the advertising was running. Still. Oh, because the advertising was running still because it had been claimed by the person uh, that the the the, the um, rapper Chief Keef, the the network that he's under, which actually I believe is the network that Ethan is under. So the money was being uh, siphoned to um, the the network and the um, the the artist. So what happens when a co- when a copyright claim comes in? The video stays up. Money will still be made. Ads will still run, but just not to the person who uploaded the video. Right. So I have, like, I, I think, I like, one of my early Flea Market Madness videos, for example, I have a Super Mario Brothers 2 song in the back end of it. Nintendo right. claimed that video years ago. Evil Nintendo. So ads will still run. I don't get the money. When I go into analytics, I don't see any money being made, but someone's making money. It's the big Nintendo dog making the money. Yeah. On the back of small YouTuber Pat. So other people can still be making money even though the uploader is not. And that's, I suppose, in the heat of a moment, that is something that is forgotten. So the the accusation that they created screenshots is dangerous. Uh, it could be really devastating to a journalist's career. Not just from the people, you know, going after the guy personally. I'm sure he probably got some death threats on Twitter. He definitely did. But it's dangerous because you are accusing this, this, this heralded news site of creating a story 
Where they are, they'd have nothing to gain if they made it up. They'd have nothing to gain, but everything to lose. Why would the Wall Street Journal make that shit up? What would be the possible benefit to make you to make you to make the advertisers feel unsteady or not sure about YouTube? Even if that happened, that money wasn't going to get siphoned back to the Wall Street Journal or the quote-unquote mainstream media because there are entirely different audiences watching YouTube videos and reading sites like the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. Different demographics, different uh, makeup probably economically by large, and especially by age. Right. So it's not a zero-sum game when it comes to advertising. And I think that's what these YouTubers are missing out on. When they try to create in their head this sort of war which is sexy as fuck to say. We're in a war. Yeah. Let's let's grab my cosplay plastic sword and and Viking helmet. I don't know. What the fuck? I don't know. <laughs> the point is this though. It's really it's really a romantic notion to get to beat the drums of war to say it's them against us when there's really no war, war. first of all. There's no battlefield to actually wage it on. And it's not like the Wall Street Journal is going to put out a snarky five-minute response saying, fuck you guys. You know, like, it's not, it's totally, it's a totally different medium. If you, if you leave out the PewDiePie thing, all, all this is, is, it, it's, this is not an attack on YouTube. This is, this is a Wall Street Journal article about the evolution of advertising and how, it's a totally legit story. Yeah, about how Google needs to... Well, like we, we just talked about, how Google needs to take action about how ads are handled and how they're going to change it. It it, it It's only because YouTube was still so hot over the PewDiePie thing that tempers flared and, like I said, uh, shots were fired before, I think... Uh, total investigation was done. Um, I, I, I read something somewhere, and, and I, I, I do kind of agree with this, that uh, Ethan Klein did do some, some research here uh, that could lead to some, collusion, some conclusions, but it wasn't thorough, and I think what people, what people tend to do in these instances is forget that perhaps the other people have done their research as yeah. well. Yeah, do you honestly think Coca-Cola would pull advertising based upon a Wall Street Journal story? You know what I mean? Like, you don't think they would have done their due diligence themselves talking to Google and being like, is this ad, is this ad actually running on here or what's going on? When these when these when these tons of companies, dozens and dozens of companies pull their ads. I'm not sure if all of them are back yet. You don't think they looked into it themselves? You don't think they have a Google rep to talk to to really talk about, okay, what's going on here? They're not gonna they're not looking for YouTubers to do do exposes on it. Well, and, and and whatever you think on the PewDiePie thing, this reporter, and now his name is uh, slipping my mind, but after the fallout from that, you would also think that perhaps he is um, also doing more due diligence on the reporting of something like Jack this. Jack Nikas is the reporter. Nikas. Okay, yeah, he I, got, I was going to say Nicole. I, I saw Nikas. him get hate. The problem when, when when this stuff happens, and with retractions in general, the first story always gets like 10 times the amount of views and eyes versus the retraction. Sure. This was this this accusation was fake news. It was absolutely fake news. It was dead sure that, oh, this is what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, I, I, Wall Street Journal, I'm not saying they should, 
they could send lawyers after someone for, for saying that you made up a story. You made up screenshots. I hope they don't do that, but that's how serious that video was and how much heat they got for for someone saying things that weren't true. This is their response uh, to all the hubble-blah, The Wall Street Journal stands by its March 24th report that major brand advertisers were running alongside objectionable videos on YouTube. Any claim that the related screenshots or any other reporting was in any way fabricated or doctored is outrageous and false. The screenshots related to the article... Uh, which represent only some of those found were captured on March 23rd and March 24th. And it goes on from there. Uh, the journal is proud of its reporting and, it, and the high standards it brings to its journalism. We go to considerable lengths to ensure its accuracy and fairness, and that is why we are among the most trusted source of news in the world. Again, this is a conspiracy theory that's totally, at this point, false. In order for these conspiracies to be true... Especially in this case, you'd have to have not just the author make it up, the editor would have to be on in on it to approve it as well, and then who knows who else at the Wall Street Journal. Again, for what possible gain to make up, you know, quote-unquote fake news that actually was true. Yeah. So, as my pal, Norm the Gaming Historian, said on Twitter eloquently, when you hear hoofsteps... Assume it's a horse before a zebra. Yes. That is a very good quote. <laughs> so, from here, I think, you, it's again, it's always sexy to say there's a war going on, uh, YouTube is dead, fucking relax, be an adult. And I'll just say this as to close it, since you look like you're in pain from listening to me. It's not from listening to you. It's, there's a danger to me, personally, when I... Uh, and it's not it's not a, a bitterness it's, or jealousy. People say it is, but I don't have the voice of other YouTubers that get th- these headlines for now the wrong reasons. When advertisers and people in the mainstream now see the YouTubers coming becoming more and more in the mainstream for really bad reasons, it's it's bad for everyone. So when you're going to accuse a, a major news organization, you better have your ducks in a fucking row before you do that. Because you only represent yourself, but people are going to think you represent all of us, and you don't. Yeah. You don't represent Ian, me, or other people I know when you do shit that turns that goes south in a, in a jiffy. In a jiffy. In a jiffy? In a are we jiffy. sponsored by Jiffy? No, Jiffy's jiffy crap like, peanut butter. There's so much sugar in that. I only do all natural peanut butter at this point. Uh, was it Ann Scudders? Annie Scudders? Is that the one? What's her name? I don't know. Scudders is a really weird last name. Okay, moving on. Moving on. Ian, you like food, don't you? Yes, I do. You know there's a service where you can get fresh ingredients to prepare your own meals every week. It's called Blue Apron. Indeed. And we got a chance to try it out. And you you liked it, didn't you? Yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. What, what did you What did you get from them? So I made, uh, well, I received uh, Parmesan-crusted chicken. Oh, nice. And I also received... Uh, pork uh with korean rice cakes which oh, nice. i was actually very excited to make and that's the one that i made first and i got fontina stuffed pork chops and chicken under a brick now you think that hey i'm not a chef i can't make this stuff well the cool thing about blue apron is that they send you all the pre-packaged ingredients to the specifications no you don't have to measure anything yourself you know you don't have to worry about any of that they give you the meats, they give you the ingredients they give you the instructions on on cool cards like this and it's pretty pretty foolproof to make like good meals it's not just like scratch meals where you might screw something up now if you follow the you know you're going to get a restaurant quality meal 
Yeah. Um, most of the meals are uh, about, uh, I would say, two pans. Um, so if you're good at multitasking, they're actually pretty quick to make. Um, everything, uh, there's just a little bit of prep involved with like your aromatics, like ginger, garlic, stuff like that. And uh, then you're ready to go. Uh, it's interesting because you get to try these different types of meals. You get to try something uh, Korean, say, and um, you get these ingredients that instead of having to go out and buy these large bottles of, say, these sauces and things, uh, they give you just enough so there isn't sure. any waste. Instead of spending $6 and going out to a market to buy the sauce that you may never use again, you get just enough for that meal so that you can try it and get the whole shebang. Yeah. And because everything is already measured out in terms of these sauces, the meals come together very quickly. And uh, the other thing I very much liked about uh, Blue Apron is uh, when they say it's a four... See, I got um, uh, the two meals that serve four people each. I believe you got the... Uh, what did you? Pick? I got three meals to serve two people. Gotcha. Um, but I found that those uh, serving sizes were actually very accurate. They're pretty with- on target. I mean, like, like uh, for example, I had the the pork chop. So it was it was one pork chop stuffed with fontina cheese, uh, a, basically a potato that that you roasted in the pan with some stuff in there to do that, and uh, some sweet peppers with a tomato paste and other stuff. I'm not doing it justice, and it was just enough for me. I was surprised, like you know, this isn't going to fill me. It actually filled me up. Yeah, I was shocked by that. With the uh, pork and uh, rice cakes, Vani and I got um, two good-sized dinners and enough leftovers to t- uh, for each of us to take for lunch, actually, today. So, so. this is less than $10 per meal. Uh, seasonal uh, recipes that are available on their website. It, the ingredients are always fresh, delivered right to your door. Um, you, like I said, new recipes every week. You can customize your recipes based upon your preferences as well. There's delivery options, so you can get it delivered uh, to fit your needs. Uh, and there's no weekly commitment. You only get deliveries when you want them. And each meal, like we said, is step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe cards in my hand, pre-portioned ingredients, can be prepared in 40 minutes or less, and there's a guarantee of freshness as well. So they're a proud sponsor now of the CU Podcast, if you haven't uh, told. So you can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping. Go to blueapron.com slash unnecessary. Uh, that's blueapron.com slash unnecessary. We'll probably get that changed to something easier, but for now, it's U-N-N-E-C-E-S-S-A-R-Y. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Unnecessary always gives me trouble. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, did you see that Nintendo Direct? Yeah, I did see that Nintendo Direct. What a weird Nintendo Direct that was. <laughs> that was almost like uh, when you are in first grade... Figure out a, a way to repeat the sentence and say the same thing in a different way. You know? Yeah, um, I'm good at that sometimes. <laughs> uh, so, <clears throat> what I thought was cool about it was um, they very much showed that the 3DS is not dead yet. And I, I was happy about that because I really I, I love the 3DS. Yeah. That's IGN. Yeah, Pat. Never ever (laughs) muting your fucking computer before we start. Blame IGN's auto ads with with fucking five-hour energy. All right, go. Yeah, okay, I'll I'll blame that. Um, So, 
Uh, it was neat to see that. It was neat to see that they're going to be doing a uh, another Kirby game. It was neat to uh, see that they're doing, um, a, I believe, a turn-based Monster Hunter RPG, which oh, yeah. uh, really, really um, is interesting to me because they've all been uh, action-based. Uh, you know, almost uh, like, they've been more twitchy, right? They're fa- they're 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 like Fantasy Star Online times ten um, dungeon crawler crafting grinds. They're they're really okay. fun. Um, so, you know, we're getting some more 3DS stuff. That's cool. They're getting, uh, let's see, Project, uh, no, that's not, that's a Switch one. No, this is all Switch stuff in the article I linked to. So, oh, thanks, Ian, for f- fucking submarining me. Anyway, go on. I didn't. <laughs> I even put it in the, uh, topic. So, that's cool. That was a cool thing. Another cool thing was is we finally have uh, release dates for uh, ARMS and Splatoon 2, which are two very cool-looking games for the Switch um, that people are definitely looking forward to, I believe. ARMS is uh, June 11th, and uh, Splatoon 2 is July 21st, which is actually earlier than I thought you know it what? might be. ARMS looks more interesting the more they show it. It's a little bit more deeper, I think, than people originally gave it. I think originally people were like, well, this is sort of like Wii Boxing before the Switch. Or now you're looking at different types of attacks, uh, different upgrades, different types of, of weaponry. It looks like there's some nuance uh, to this. I also think people uh, calm the fuck down about it when they realize that it's not going to force motion controls. That's it. So, you know, you don't have to do this fucking punching shit. Uh, that's when I suddenly became very interested in it. So that was cool. But then they went on to announce a whole bunch of other shit that, at least in my opinion, took a bit of wind out of my sails. Now, they've got to announce this stuff at some point, I guess. Are you talking 3DS or Switch? Switch. You're going to just go right to the Switch, okay? We're going back to the Switch. I think that's that's far more important. Okay. Um, Disgaea 5 Complete. Okay, cool. Uh, we've had this guy a five. That's been out. Uh, Payday two. That game's about four years old. You know, when I saw that, I, I couldn't remember when that came out. I remember seeing a trailer of that. Was, was it four years ago? At least I think three, four years ago. Uh, Sonic Forces. Okay, that's cool. Probably going to be multi-plat. That's, 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 that's a new game. That's a new game. That's a sequel okay. to. Uh, that's the sequel, basically, to Sonic Generations. Minecraft. Yay! It's got to be on your system, though. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, it has a Nintendo why pack is it, built I mean, in. Who, who doesn't? I mean, great, exciting, um, so exciting. Um, I'm, well, I'm, if you have a kid, they want to play Minecraft. Sure, that's not a system. How about the- Fate Extella? Okay, that's like a a Dynasty Warriors type game. Uh, it came for the PS4 and Vita, so it's a port. Puyo Puyo Tetris is probably going to be a lot of fun on the Switch. Looking forward to it. Uh, it is being brought over for the PS4 and uh, and the Switch, so that's cool. Um, Monopoly. Really? You're, I mean, you feel like you need to show off Monopoly for the Switch? You're going to hype up Monopoly, one of the world's worst fucking board games? Uh, I hope you bite through your tongue completely. I've been playing Monopoly games on behind consoles. Is that too hard? Sorry. I've played the NES one. I play it on my fucking IBM XT. I love Monopoly video games. You're a, you're excited. Okay. okay. Remember that tweet I made earlier about you having bad taste? Double time. Taste this finger, asshole. Double double taste time. It. When they showed that Monopoly, 
it actually looked a little more interesting than I thought. I, I, I was neutral. I was like, I like, I like the animations. I like it. You can take it and put it on your table because you have the tabletop mode and you can have four controllers. I don't... I think... It, hey, if that's like a, a $30 game, why not? I'm not saying you're going to spend 60 bucks on that. Okay. Hey, well, do people buy board games, like old school board games anymore like that? Do they still play Clue? I, I play board games a lot. Okay. I'm not talking about tabletop games where now there's like a thousand pieces and 4,800 rules. I'm talking about the traditional ones. All right, you're going to go on? You want me to be honest about something? Uh, Vani uh, felt like I deserved something very nice after six months of this bullshit. And uh, I woke up sick in bed at about two in the afternoon and rolled over and found a switch on my bed. Oh. And one of the first games I got for it was Othello. Yeah, okay, so you can fuck off then. Make fun of my Monopoly. <laughs> How about you care about more Neo Geo games on the console coming? Yes. You know, uh, uh, so I Namco love... Museum? Yes. Come on! Yeah, but okay, but I mean, okay, Cinemore EX. I beat Cinemore EX on the on the 360. I mean, it's a good game, but Sonic it's Mania. another fucking port. That was a Kickstarter, wasn't it? Yeah, I it's pre-ordered. I have it pre-ordered for the PS4. Um, Rayman Legends Definitive Edition. Great, a definitive edition of a game we've all been able to play before. Let me just say this: they had Rolling Thunder show on the, on the Nintendo Direct, and I was like, "This I'm getting hard." This Namco Museum could be great if if right. they just stop fucking around and put. Like, well, just, hold on. It does only have like nine games. Is that right? No, that's what's announced so far. If they can just, it better have what's on the fucking PS2 like anniversary one. There's like thirty five games or whatever. There's not even that many on the anniversary one. They, they need to stop fucking around and just compile all of the various Namco museums together. This is not. This is not exciting. You're not excited for uh, Ultra Street Fighter Two. Insane edition with first-person perspective Hadoukens. <laughs> I don't know how that's going to work into the game. It just looked interesting. Uh, sort of. But they, but again, what are the prices of these? So if like Ultra Street Fighter Two is like a thirty-dollar game, it's not. It's fifty. Then I'm not. Again, you're not. You can't sell me the same game again that I, that I bought an Xbox uh, three sixty like five years ago for for like fifteen. I think it's just the same graphics. I don't think it's got the same balance tweaks. I hope. Well, not. they upgraded uh, oh, the, the it, graphics, or you can go back to the the retro yeah, graphics, and still. it adds Evil Ryu and Evil Ken. I don't care. Um, but so I understand that they're holding out for heavy hitters at E three. Well, you got okay. Mario Kart 8 Deluxe. That's gonna that's gonna do gangbusters. Yes. So I I'm okay with. So this is the thing. I'm okay with the the. I don't know how to explain this. I'm okay with them announcing the 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 release dates of of those ga- those big games that we were all already looking forward to, right? Okay. But I feel like that this. This list of kind of lukewarm announcements, while some of these could be pretty cool, I feel like if depending on what type of gamer you are, you look at this and you see ports or multiplats. You're not seeing any exclusives. Um, I don't see that getting a lot of people who are sitting on the fence getting super excited about it. But Ian, right now there's not people sitting on the fence. I don't think that people understand that we are still in the springtime. And that's not common for uh, a release, especially a Nintendo console. And it's still sold out everywhere. I feel like it would have been better to withhold at least some of these less exciting things like Monopoly 
And you're just saying from a marketing standpoint, don't show this as your main don't, title. Don't drop all of this at once. Keep some things like Monopoly and the Namco Museum out of this presentation. Okay. And then put it... Don't even bring it up. You're saying just, just slide announce them out at E3. Slide them out at E3 with everything else good that you've got, yeah. so that people don't think that this is all that's coming down the pipeline. This is, this is all that's coming down the pipeline for next next couple months. This <laughs> is in right now. No, I know, but it, it's like you know, everyone who well, who are you? Every, everyone who wanted a switch was okay with was basically okay with what was leading up to the rest of the year. But this doesn't change what was announced before. It's not like they have canceled or pushed back stuff that was announced before it came out when they had their list of like eighty games or titles. That I, were, I over- you don't like you don't like the optics of it. You don't right. always like how. No, I'm appears. I'm always looking at the psychological viewpoint of how how this might appear to people. I would say this: the dirty <laughs> casuals won't start buying this until at least the summer, if not the fall. And then once because summer you have people kids on vacation, you buy something for them. The fall obviously. You know, that's when stuff usually comes out, new systems. And then for Christmas, everyone's going to buy it no matter what. So right now, it's just to keep the early adopters satisfied. Right. And they are because there's one fucking huge game on the system that if you bought that game, you're good for the next five months. Bomberman's you know? good. And, and and Bomberman for you, Ian. Uh, fast RMX is good. But Zelda. Zelda is the game that they, they held back from the Wii U for obvious reasons because they had to make the Switch a success. And it's a, it's a success. They're doubling the, the production amount, and they'll probably sell a good chunk of that doubling this year. You know, so I think they'll be fine because there's a lot of people that remember Mario Kart Eight. I love Mario Kart Eight. Oh yeah, on no, the it's, Wii U, it's a fucking fantastic. You know what the problem is? Not a lot of people had the Wii U, so there's gonna be people that are gonna discover this game for the first time. Uh, I'm just, this is like a fucking promo for them, but the people will be discovering this game for the first time uh, on the Switch because on the Wii, the biggest selling title. Almost forty million was Mario Kart Wii. Forty million, and I think on the Wii U it went down to like nine or ten, or a little bit less. That's an awful drop off. You make a good point that I was too dumb to see there. And you're right. This is going to be the first time a lot of people play Mario Kart Eight. And plus, they're probably they're, they're going to add it. I think the the, the DLC. Oh, it. it's uh, it, it's the uh, original game. All the all the original characters. DLC and more characters and uh, and a proper I, I, battle mode. I think a it looks proper like. battle with, mode with real battle mode uh, tracks. And it, it was like. originally rumored to have additional tracks too, but actually so. that that might just be they said that there was going to be more DLC. Either way, anyways, that'll uh, carry I think to the summer. <laughs> Splatoon two. That's more of a game that doesn't appeal to everyone, but it appear, appeals to a you know, swath of people, but not like Mario Kart does. And then once you get to the fall, we'll see what's there, and then you have the home run that hopefully by the, it has to come out before Christmas, uh, Mario Odyssey. It has to. I don't care if they... No, they're already crunching on it. They're calling it Mario time. Mario time? Uh, that's what they're referring to, re- referring to crunch time as on Mario. Uh, instead of calling it crunch time, they're calling it Mario. So they realize that this has so to come out to sell the system. When, when they're working late nights and nonstop shifts right now on Mario, they're calling it Mario time. So we'll see. But yes, going back to the 3DS real quick, so I think we, we, we should speak to this more. Um, this is of, is, of course, goodwill to the third-party developers that have kept 3DS afloat yes. for the past five years. The reason it's a, it's a success because it's a sex. It's a success is because of the third party sex. I, I rub my 3ds on my dong all the time. But even though the 3ds is are not selling as well because everyone has one that wants one, 
they've sold a ton, and Nintendo has to respect that, obviously, and these developers think that, oh, we're going to still make money, we're going to make games for it. So I think that 3DS development is going to go well into next year, I think. I think. And then it'll probably die off. Yeah, there's um, not a lot of, like, digital titles, and I think uh, I, I read somewhere that there's, like, nothing else on the virtual console on the horizon, but um, we will... I, I guarantee you this, <coughs> and this is kind of how it always seems to go with consoles, especially if you're an RPG fan, you're lucky, because you always see some RPGs come out at the tail end of a system's lifespan. And there's going to be some good ones. Well, plus, remember, the 3DS for a smaller developer is, is going to be still simple to develop for versus going up to the And Switch. cheaper, exactly. And cheaper. So it's less risk to them, less resources. They can probably sell it at a lower price. Nintendo still gets a cut of that, you know, if it's a digital download or whatever. So, I mean, there's no reason not to start, stop selling games for a successful system. And I think one last important point to make is is it gives Nintendo a little bit more breathing room on deciding what the hell their actual plan is going forward. Are they actually going to use the Switch as a replacement for both home and portable, or, or, or what? I think it, it, I think it'll probably depend upon the, the, these third-party developers. Almost everyone I know who has a Switch rarely docks it. I think I think it really I but mean it's it's a little dangerous to have that be toting that around like you would a three DS though, because it's a lot bigger and it can be No, I, I realize it and I I mean I obviously know that people do dock it, but I know a lot of people play it on the comfort of their couch in, in portable mode. What if they shrink that fucker down in a couple of years? You know? The technology always shrinks. It yeah. gets cheaper. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. And uh, uh, I believe on April 19th, uh, you'll be able to buy separate docks, which leads me to believe that they might start selling it separately. Well, you could before, but now they're coming back into stock. The docks, oh, okay. The docks were very, I think, limited before, okay. which shows me that the reason they're limited, they're having trouble, obviously, keeping up the pace of producing these things. And, of course, you'd want the main systems to sell first. But, yes, you, you want to have some households are going to have buy an extra dock. They're like $90. You know, so that's going to deter a lot. But yeah, why not? If you, if you have like you know upstairs, downstairs, you don't want to unplug the dock. You know, why not? So I'm excited about those neon, uh, the neon uh, Joy Cons to go with the uh, arms, though. That's 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 not a gimmick. Oof. The banana yellow. Sure. And I'm dying. Let's move on. Ian, you used to emulate, right? Yeah, <laughs> man. <laughs> Discovering emulation was mind blowing back in the day. And uh, what was the first one? FNES, INES. Were those the first? Was INES the first? I don't remember FNES I, or INES. Maybe that's what it was called. But it uh, didn't have sound, and you had to pay to unlock it. But then, along April third, nineteen ninety-seven, Nesticle is released, <laughs> and the doors were blown wide open. Created by Sardu of Bloodlust Software. And, man, Nesticle took up so much of my time. Uh, It's the 20th anniversary of it. And while it's no longer updated and hasn't been updated in forever, um, the importance of Nesticle cannot be uh, overstated. Um, Not only was it the first freeware NES emulator... Uh, it was the first one to allow you to uh, record a run. It was the first one to allow you to uh, access sprite files and create ROM hacks uh, with new graphics and and things like that. Um, it Simple had, to use GUI. 
Yeah, an easy-to-use graphical user interface. Um, ran in both DOS and Windows 95. Easy controller support. Yep, controller support. Um, it played almost the entire library. Uh, not flawlessly, but, but yeah. It ran them. It ran them. Um, you know, there's very few things that you would run into uh, so real no, problems Does with. it play Castlevania 3? Um, but it was awesome. Uh, all bow down to the fecal lord. Uh, you know, for years, <laughs> I didn't realize that the icon was a testicle. The, 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 you the, didn't? With a pointer. I, had no, I thought it was just a bloody hand. I had no idea. Oh, yeah. No, it's testicle. <laughs> if you don't know when you're using nesticle, it's NES plus testicle. The little mouse pointer is a bloody testicle. Try to get a bigger picture. Is that a testicle with a with a with a, is that a penis or is that a hand with a finger? I can't tell. I cannot fucking tell. Oh, I, the the icon the 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 icon was a testicle. I don't know about the hand. The, the, pointer. the pointer. I'm looking at it right now and I still can't tell. Well, that, I mean, it, it's I, it could be both. I thought that was a bloody hand. Okay, I thought it was. A, yeah, no, I thought that was a bloody. I thought hand. it was a nut sack. <laughs> Who knows? Well, it's amazing though is that. Like like Ian said, they, they they I think the last version was like ninety eight when this came out. So within like a year of it being released, this was like the basis for other emulators to follow. Like it, it sort of this was this was I guess like the Wolfenstein three D of NES emulators. Like you had to start from here. I'd give it the Doom. I'd, I'd call it the Doom. Oh really? You just go to, you Doom it up? Okay. Yeah, because <laughs> there were emulators prior to this, but this was the Doom. Um. And uh, I believe uh, Sardu went on to do Genesis, which was the first Genesis emulator I used. But I don't think that was supported for very long. And there were um, slowdown issues and problems with Genesis, uh, from what I remember. But, um, man, I remember sitting around with uh, my first girlfriend in high school, and we would just... I mean, just download ROMs and ROMs and ROMs and play them, and then we'd go to the... uh, We'd go to the flea markets on uh, Saturdays and or Sundays, and then just go buy the games that we liked the most when they were super cheap, and then play them on the TV. And that's kind of where my opinion has always come from: that emulation's not a bad thing. I mean, to me and to a lot of other people, emulation was a great way to find those games you wanted to physically own back in the day. Sure. Like I said, this is what helped me get back into Nintendo games mm-hmm. exactly. because. If you're in the late 90s, and you're just hanging out, you're in your dorm room or whatever, you're at high school, you're home, like, you know, I remember playing Nintendo games 10 years ago. Let's just search it. Oh, there's TSR's NES Archive. How do I play these? How do I play, and go into uh, Alta Vista at the time, or Web Crawl or something. Lycos. Lycos. Hot Hot I, I like Lycos and Alta Vista. Rub- web Crawler. Web Crawler. That was like, or all the, actually, all the web's still around. But um, Jeeves isn't. But you would just put in like play NES games online, and then you'd be like, "Ooh, what's this? What's a what's a ROM and an emulator?" And then you find something like Nesticle, and it's it was simple to like download and install. ROMs were plentiful even back then. You couldn't find all of them easily, but you could find all of the popular ones easily. And yep. sort of, you know, this is before torrents, but you can find websites like probably probably you think even sites like Cool ROM probably back then. Cool didn't ROM, they? yeah. Cool but ROM, like like you said, forever. you had. This, you had save states. You can pause the game, resume, resume it. Save states blew my, our minds at, when we were teenagers. Oh, yeah. Holy shit. I mean, I can finally get through the fucking uh, top secret episode uh, mazes without falling through the floor for the 80th fucking time in Brazil. You know? <laughs> uh, like you said, 
the gameplay movies. Where do you think a lot of the early, like, you know, the, when you look at, like, all those, the first three, four years of YouTube uh, uh, gameplay footage, NES games, those are all, almost all from emulators. Yeah. I guarantee you, like, if they're not using Nesticle, like, that forged the way for other ones that have uh, saving gameplay either live or playing it back. A lot of them, well, you can save your own movies and basically play it back and then record. You can actually go back and watch it. This is important shit. But it's a, it's a shame that it wasn't continued on, because if it continued on, it could have been still around today, like, and up to date. But even back then, it ran on slow computers. It wasn't, like, you know, two frames a second. It was pretty smooth. It runs basically perfectly on a, a 486. Uh, I think it even runs pretty pretty solidly on a 386. And the reason he stopped, it looked like, uh, according to Wikipedia, a code cracker named Donald Moore, also known as Mind Rape, Mind Rape, uh, he, uh, he stole the code, and then Sardu said, fuck this, I'm out. Which is a shame. You know. You hate that. You should have said, just fuck you to this guy and continue on. Please, come back. Come back, Sardu. I want Nesticle 2.5 or whatever it's it's on. Uh, anyway. So, any other closing thoughts on Nesticle's 20-year anniversary? I think this is going to be the biggest sort of emulator like this, besides MAME that we're going to remember 100 years from now. as sort of like paving the way. Yeah. No, I agree. Like, like these two. I agree. Like, like TurboGrafx is only one major one, the Magic Engine. You know, and that's that came out so far long ago, and it's still like the only one, you know, that people really talk about. Yeah, I think still. Magic Engine actually came out just a little bit after, and that was paid, but it worked. Yeah, so that guy didn't have to update it. Like it, that's one of those weird ones. We're like, yeah, it works for every game. Fuck you. That's like, what it, it says on the tin. Yeah, Magic Engine was runs the, runs the CD games. It plays the ROMs of the other ones. You know, Magic Engine was was worth paying for. Although you still have to um, burn the CDs to play them, I believe. Oh, I'm sure that was cracked after that, but sure. And then the, the early Neo Geo ones, I remember being really good alongside MAME. The Genesis and Super Nintendo ones always took a while to catch up in terms of, you know, progression. But for obvious reasons, they were a little more complicated than just running, you know, Pac-Man and, and uh, Mappy. All right. Loot Crate, Ian. Loot Crate. Loot Crate. You like Loot Crate, Ian. You like the Crate of Loot. We all like Loot Crate. I wear the shirts from time to time. There's always an, something, an exclusive uh, toy or knick-knack. The t-shirts are always exclusive, which yes. is nice. The t-shirts are always cool, and I always enjoy the buttons and the knick-knacks, I think, the most. Keychains, those little things. Um, when they do the luggage tags, I always like those. Those are interesting. Um, lots of fun stuff inside a Loot Crate. So... You go to LootCrate.com slash Pat and enter code Pat to save 10% on any new Loot Crate sign-up. Sign Ian, you want to know what the April theme is? Yes. It's Investigate. Uh-oh. Um, for April, join us as we salute some of our favorite mystery solvers with items from Stranger Things, Batman, The X-Files, and Marvel's Jessica Jones. One lucky subscriber will also win a mega crate, including signed copies of Jessica Jones alias volumes one through four yeah damn i want that you have until <laughs> april 19th at 9 p.m pacific to subscribe and receive the the april themes investigate uh, after that cutoff happens that's it it's over you gotta wait for uh, for may go to lootcrate.com slash pat enter code p-a-t to save 10 percent again and uh give the geek in your life a crate of loot or yourself treat yourself ian do you treat yourself you need to treat yourself with what's going on lately i think <laughs> Breaking news, Ian. Yeah. I was alerted to this right before we started recording the podcast. Our favorite reality show, Storage Wars, which we've discussed before with a Nintendo game and video game finds, there was another storage locker of video games that just sold to uh, my pal, Renee. Oh. 
your uh, your favorite your 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 favorite one stop shop at uh, the swap meet. Yeah. He used to come to the swap meet. He's talking about his family. He was very nice in the beginning. He turned bitter and kind of sour after a while. He'll probably tweet at me after this segment, probably. But you know what? I'll fire back if he does. But that's okay. I'm going to try to be objective here. Um, he bought a storage unit for fifteen hundred dollars. That they claim had like what was it forty two thousand dollars worth of uh, video game merchandise in it, and they got to that extrapolation after going through some particulars at first that we we saw. We and the problem with with these shows, there's there's two problems, is that they don't show you everything when they go through all these boxes, right? So that's the first problem. So when they're giving these valuations, it's really tough to know if they're right or not for a lot of this stuff. But we did see some ones we can comment on. The other problem is is that I don't know if they're in a rush or that. He had his assistant with him named Fluffy uh, go through some stuff. And I'm not going to get on him in particular if he was wrong on some valuations. But you don't know. You don't. It, it, it's a rush through it, and you don't know. But and problematically with shows like these. Um, especially because they don't show you everything. You see things, a quick valuation is applied, you don't know what's being missed in a box, and this is how, uh, and we've we've gotten on this before, uh, this is how people end up thinking their trash is worth gold. Sure. And the, the other times that video game showed up was with the NES 101 that they thought was worth whatever, $100,000, what it wasn't. And then when they went the... No, the, the NES 001. 001, is that yeah. what it was? Uh, and then when Daryl went to the, that game store, and then the valuation was, we thought, at least two to three times more than what it should have been. And that was being generous yeah. at the time. So there was a bunch of boxes they found here. But the first thing they had was a, a tub of Genesis games. Um, about I want to say it was about 150 games. Was that, is that yeah, probably they found they, There was a scat in there, too, for the NES. There was a, The first thing they find is a scat for the NES with a bunch of Genesis games. I will not say that this stuff is made up. But I think it's strange that the only Nintendo game, the first thing you see on a pile of Genesis games, is a hard-to-find NES game. That said, they found it there. I'm going to assume everything that they found was there and is real. Yeah. But it was weird that that was on top of that. And maybe they transported over to sort of sweeten that tub and say this is a better tub. But in that tub, they also found a Musha and a Sunset Riders. Um, which is fine. I think the value, well, the valuation is fair for the individual games. 200 yeah. for Musha. I think it's a 200 for Scat. Something and, like that. And 50 for Sunset Riders. That's, on the, that's on the money. The, the problem is what giving a $3,000 valuation to, to the, the remaining, remaining games. tub. <laughs> and when you look at that tub, you see some commons. You see stuff like Lion King real quick. Again, this is flashes of it. Outrun. Uh, Outrun. And these are all loose titles. So these are going to be much less than obviously complete in bucks. So a $3,000 valuation on about 150 games is $20 each. That's just not possible uh, for that tub. Uh, moving on. This is when Ian's interest really got peaked. Uh, there was a, a box, they said, about 300 Atari games, slash some in television games. I think there was an Emerson Arcadia game in there. A lot of them were... Uh, 7,800. 5,200 games. 5,200. I like. I'm a 5,200 fan. Um, valued at like $10 a piece. That's, so, that's insane. So, so, so he just throws out $3,000 for that box because he figures 300 times $10 each. For 5,200... I think there's some 2600 games, Aramis and Arcadia, and some miscellaneous games. As you and I know, Ian, selling Atari games loose is one of the hardest things to do to get rid of retro games. Yeah. It's not easy to do. And the higher end 
uh, titles that are uncommon might reach $10, $20, but the vast majority of Atari games are less than $5. Even if you average it out and there was some supreme rarities in there, you're not hitting a $10 average per game. Those 300 Atari games, uh, are mo- slash intelligence, whatever else, are most likely not uh, $3,000. You'd be lucky to get $800, probably. Yeah, it's hilarious, because that was actually the quote on the nose that I was about you were to thinking say. about 800 I was thinking about 800 You get about 250 each, $3, something in that range, and you'd be happy for that. Uh, the, there was a tub of... Uh, we didn't see if there was a TurboGrafx-16 system, but we saw about a stack of 10 Hue Card TurboGrafx-16 games. About 10? I eyeballed 9 yeah. or 10? We'll just say 10. Or it was valued at $500. The one that was visible, though, was World Class Baseball, which is arguably the least valuable Trevor Graphics game after Keith Courage and Alpha Zones. I can't say what was underneath it, but, but but the fact that they were loose, unless those were all extreme heavy hitters, I, I... I, you don't know. Yeah. But most likely... Mm, I mean, Let's put it this way. If there was a highlight in there that was worth money, and he pulled out a Musha, you think that that person would be like, okay, here's Magical mm. Chase, or, you know, here's even, uh, I don't know, Parasol Stars, or you know what I mean, or, or something like that. It would like have that. had to have been all stuff like Parasol Stars or Shooters. Here's here's Time Cruise, or some uncommon ones. All right. The next one is really strange, just because it was a flash of them fumbling with about five or four Game & Watches, and then saying... 800 is, for the box. 800 for the box. That could actually be true, because Game & Watches can be worth a lot. The problem with that goes back to what we said about them you don't flashing see. over stuff. You have no idea what else is in the box. You don't have no idea. I also didn't get to see what Game & Watches they were. Game & Watches can go for a lot, so that could actually be accurate. Could be true. <clears throat> if you have 10 to 20 Game & Watches that are in decent shape... However, $300 for a box containing an NES and some VHS tapes. Okay, we we made sure that this wasn't like the audio lined up with another visual. Renee leans over a box, has an NES in his hand, flips it, and then there's just VHS tapes underneath. Now, if you want to say there's a, there was a layer of box NES game somewhere there, okay, I can see that, but $300 for an NES by itself and VHS tapes that you will be... <laughs> paying people to take from you. I don't see that happening. The next one I thought was the most insane one just because um, it was $2,000 for a box of it looked like 2600 7800 There was, I think, an, there could have been an Emerson Arcadia there. It looked like... It looked like the box I see at the flea market every other month where there's a dusty old 2600 and then you have a just uh, uh, 80 Atari games thrown next to it and then the guy wants 40 bucks for all of it and you take it from him. And they said that was $2,000. If you know anything about Atari 700 and 2600 games, you need almost 2,000 games to get to that valuation of $2,000. It looks like a box I've tripped over numerous times in the back of Luna. <laughs> you know, you, you know, you have your, your classics like uh, Enduro Racer, and uh, you know, you might get your uncommon one, like your Spectra uh, video or something in there that's worth like 5 or $10, but unless they're telling us individually... This one's worth fifty. This is a hundred. This is two hundred dollars for Atari twenty six hundred, which there aren't that many, uh, especially loose. That's not a two thousand dollar box. It ain't. Um, the next one they said fifteen hundred dollars easy. Again, you don't see. I saw like three Tempest two thousand Jaguar boxes sitting there. Who the fuck knows what's in there? But with the track record so far, I don't know. Couple other ones. There was a Dusty Turbo Express. 
Uh, two hundred fifty dollars if it's cleaned up and works. It's two hundred fifty dollars. Yeah. At this point in time, and then a bubble 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 two that had some sort of Famicom adapter on I the bottom. I think it was a Famicom adapter. On and the they bottom. said five hundred dollars for that. Is that accurate for a loose Bubble Bobble 2 this day and age? I couldn't even tell. Well, I'll look it up right now, or a certain NES Guide app could do it uh, for you. But did, 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 not even close. Okay, so the because I feel like we sold a, a like a perfect boxed complete one for about that maybe six months to a year ago. That was unreasonable for one that had the box. So let's see, two hundred and eighty uh, for a real real one, two hundred and eight dollars. Tons of repros, three forty. Okay, it's not close to that amount, that price valuation. Uh, three forty six, two twenty seven. So we're, you know, if you average it out, we'll just say about three hundred dollars. Yeah. No, okay. I was gonna say a boxed one, I think uh, the uh, the complete one went for about five hundred. So do you see a danger in these wild valuations? Yeah, like I said, this is what causes. Uh, well, a when you look at something like Atari, it causes grandmas to go into their attic and see things worth uh, think that yeah. things are worth them but it also uh, this is what causes the market to spike on things that didn't have that value before the issue with the Atari games in particular is that even if you wanted to get max value for the Atari 2600 games that aren't worth that that amount of money the market for Atari 2600 collector is probably 10% or less of an NES collector or right. a Sega Genesis collector. It's so, our pals at Atari age. It's our pals at Atari age. Hey, Atari so, age! So when you're giving these wild valuations that, from my per- from my expertise, Renee, are off for 90% of these, that would even be for a pie in the sky if you took your time to collate them Go through them, price them accordingly, and then throw them on eBay with high buy nows and wait for people to pull the trigger. Not pricing to sell at a convention just to get rid of them. Not selling them as a set to get rid of them quickly and recoup some money. The maximum dollar amount when you value video games is based upon usually buy it nows off of eBay that have went. That's the environment that you're placing them on. Not a store environment necessarily, which could be higher or lower, but you could hold on to it. And it but it also doesn't account for the time it's going to take for you to go through those individual games. So when he says... Time is money. When he says those 300 Atari games is worth $3,000 somehow at $10 a piece, any person that... Any collector that looks at a box of 300 Atari games might say, I'll give you four or $500 for that box. And a reasonable businessman might say, okay, take it. Especially if my investment into this whole unit is only $1,500. Now, I'm a third of the way uh, recouping that cost. Right, exactly. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of problems with this. Well, the other problem is, too, especially if you look at something like Atari, um, I've noticed two markets for Atari collecting right now. You have 15- and 16-year-old kids who think it's just kind of neat who don't have the money to pay an inflated price on Atari games at, you know, 10, 15 bucks a piece. They're interested in it because they can get the games for two, three bucks a piece, a dollar. And then you have the people at Atari age who have the games that they want. So who are you moving them to? And then the other, the the end of it, to get the, the total valuation of the entire unit, he said, well, there's 30 more boxes there, like $150 each, that adds like $30,000, whatever the hell he said. We don't know what's in those boxes. We don't know if they're video games, because a lot of the other shit they showed were like VHS tapes, some of them, so we have no idea. It could be more, no but it could, it could be. be less. I mean, it's just, it's a random guess. It, it could be. So it, it's not to totally kill someone like Renee, 
who I think is not a good businessman from my experience, seeing him yell at uh, little ladies looking at fucking industrial staplers and picking them out of their hands because they're not, you know, buying it fast enough. You've done that, Renee. Don't fucking deny that because I was there. Um, besides that, though, I just don't think this is good uh, to have wild valuations like this. I just don't. We have a <clears throat> scumbag. Scumbag. A scumbag? scumbag. Seller. Scumbag. Talking seller. about a seller, someone that sells something, someone that, that sells who's scummy something? about it, scummy about it, about it. And, of, and it's at a time period, and it's at a time uh, period. of the week, uh, which is seven days, seven, seven days, not a fortnight, days. not a fourteen. Days. This would be a long 14. echo. This would be a long echo of the week. People are getting annoyed now. All right, So this scumbag seller of the week is unique underscore souvenirs seven. Ian, and why they have scumbag seller of the week? Because they are selling repro Super Nintendo and NES boxes, but they're only souvenirs. They're just you know, souvenirs. Something you would totally find in a souvenir shop. <laughs> next Alongside to your mini Statue of Liberty. Oh, I was going to say mini Eiffel Tower, oh, okay. we're on the same page. I had a mini Statue of Liberty from, from 1986. <laughs> nice. Very nice. In the Bicentennial. Um, yeah, uh, so these are great. Uh, brand new Super Nintendo Entertainment System replacement box. Souvenir one-to-one, not original. Uh, and a uh, same thing with the uh, Nintendo Entertainment System replacement box. No styrofoam comes with the box. Great for display or storage of your old system. These boxes are in new mint condition and are hard to find. They're not hard to find if you can just print off more of them. <laughs> I always love when people say that. Yeah, it's no. The originals are hard to find. Digital file rare. No, it's not. No, no, no it's it's not <laughs> hard to find at all. I'm pretty sure I could go out on the internet right now and find it. Um, so when you look at these, uh, by, by the way, it's ninety dollars for these two souvenir boxes oh, plus shipping. That's a. F- so when you look at that's them, steal. I'm sure in person. We can tell the flaws of this a lot more easily. From first glance, it doesn't look awful, but then you look at like the Nintendo logo and you look at the spacing of the of like the the font and the letters. You see the logo, the the oval. Holy Nintendo. shit! So you look at the side of the Super Nintendo box next to good old Yoshi and and Mario riding him. It looks awful there. So it's not even. It's good that it's not totally accurate. Or look at it on on the NES control deck on the the top left, the gray, that looks fucking painted on almost by hand. It looks that bad. No, it's just the Nintendo logo alone, like... But that's what's so weird, because the other parts of it are just a pure scan. But that looks like it was custom, that part of it. Yeah. So, this isn't a one-to-one, like they say, but I'm glad, though, because it looks like like horse shit. It looks awful. Yeah, if that came came into the store... (laughs) It's like they they pressed the space bar too many times when typing out Nintendo. It's not even the right font, I don't think. I don't. <laughs> they couldn't find the Nintendo font. It's not, want... it's not the right shade of gray. Great for display or storage of your old system. How can you store your old system without the styrofoam in a box like this that I don't know if it even has the same quality? I don't know. What's interesting, though, is that this is the one of the only video game items this person is selling. When you click on their other items, it's sports memorabilia, memorabilia uh, patches, Signed a uh, Draymond Green jersey of the uh, the Golden State Warriors, uh, Nobel Prize souvenir medal in physics or, or chemistry rare USA Sweden. Ian, Ian is is 
is is tightening up because he knows how awful this is. The whole point is this: is that I don't see how you can get into this business thinking it's a good idea to make counterfeit boxes for consoles that are that aren't good looking to begin with, and but that cost probably more than going out and buying a box by itself. Yes, that's the other part. For forty five dollars, yes. I'm pretty sure I can find a control deck box without the styrofoam. Yep, for the NES. Uh huh. So. It's just a really... They, they sold one. They actually sold one. Oh, my God. So, I don't know how you get into this business. I don't know if it's something you just do for fun and say, you know what, I think I can sell these. Please don't please don't buy this. I'd rather... I don't know what I'd rather you do. Uh, I'd rather you spend money from another scumbag of the cell of the week that's that's more uh, deserving even of this. But this is just... Uh, do oh, drugs. <laughs> do drugs so that Nintendo logo looks, like, looks correct yeah. in your eyes. Do, do the right drugs to make that Nintendo logo just... Breathe this mesh. Yeah. Any, any any closing closing thoughts? And this is a pretty quick uh, scumbag sell of the week. Oh, you want to get a, a Chris Christie signed Time magazine with his face on the cover saying the boss? He's selling that too. I heard even more. Now <laughs> we're done with this. This is some positive news following an unfortunate tragedy: the death of Carrie Fisher around Christmas. That happened. So. At the time, I was postulating, as many of you probably were, about what to do about Carrie Fisher appearing in Star Wars Episode Nine. Uh, fortunately, before passing, she had finished filming Episode Eight, which is due out December of this year. By the time you hear this, I think that the first trailer might be out because they're doing Star Wars Celebration in Orlando uh, the weekend of April fifteenth. Uh, so they'll probably show it. They'll probably show it. But we were wondering, you know, what to do about Episode Nine. Uh, Lucasfilm came out and said there was going to be no CG recreation out of respect for Carrie Fisher and her family. That that seems sort of beyond the pale from them to do that. They don't want to make it like a, you know, to simplify into like a Jar Jar Binks sort of situation. But that's not what they wanted to do. They they felt that would not be doing a service to Carrie Fisher's legacy and her memory. But they came to an agreement. Uh, according to Fisher's brother, Todd Fisher, uh, Princess Leia will appear in Episode Nine via Carrie Fisher footage that they shot and didn't use for, I'm guessing, Episode Seven and Eight. Uh, "Quote unquote" recent footage. So that's good news that we're going to have some sort of closure uh, to the character and at least see this beloved, iconic character in the the last Star Wars movie to feature her, and not just have. Princess Leia written out in, in, in which I thought or General Leia now and I thought like an off screen explosion or they explain her she's not there or they, they go to the J.J. Abrams uh, Star Trek route um, and have Spock you know find out he dies in the beginning of the third movie and there's a funeral uh, which all could have been a path you could have went would have probably pissed off people whatever decision you made, you would have pissed off one form of the fan base or other to say, leave it alone, respect her memory, don't have her in it at all, or no, you respect her by respecting the story and what she would have wanted. So, it's a happy medium, I guess, if you can say that, where if you have footage of her, uh, I don't know what locations you took with her, I don't know if you're going to do CG with the background, you know, some sort of uh, place her against green screen and CG and different backgrounds for her. I'm not sure what dialogue she's recorded, Carrie Fisher, already, that you could uh, recycle and use again for Episode Nine. I have no idea. Obviously, they're going to have to rewrite 
uh, some of that for episode nine. Uh, so the decision that was made because Todd Fisher said, uh, how do you take her out of it? The answer is you don't. She's as much a part of it as anything. I think her presence now is even more powerful than it was. Like Obi-Wan, when the saber cuts him down, he becomes more powerful. I feel like that's what's happened with Carrie. I think the legacy should continue. I think a lot of us thought that it should continue in some capacity as well. It's just that, again, there was no simple answer. It's not like she even, you know, if she had finished like three quarters filming episode nine and you could have like finished, you know, with some little CG or trickery or body doubles, like like they did with uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman in that last Hunger Games, where he had filmed part of it but not all of it, I think most of us would have been okay with that. It would have been dis- it would not have been disrespect. It would have been like, well, you know, it was filmed. They got to do a little bit more. They got to just use some you know magic and trickery of film, you know, in order to complete it. I think we would have been we would have been fine, and and we would have thought that was respectable. But when you start from scratch, it's it's tougher to do that. I mean, remember, they, like, for Fast and the Furious uh, 7, they, they basically shut down re- production uh, for, like, you know, six to eight months before they you know, had to rewrite a chunk of, ch- chunk of it and figure out how to replace the rest of Paul Walker's performance. You know, so this way, I think it's cleaner if you know going in, okay, we're not going to see, you know, her perform part of it and then guess, well, is that her? Is that a body double? You know now that this was all pre-filmed. I don't know what sort of magic they're going to do with green screen or CG in order to put her in different backgrounds or talk to someone. I have no idea. But at least this is really her in the film. Um, and, and that at least, it, 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 it'll bring warmth to my heart at least a little bit. I think everyone watching will be like, okay, we're not being tricked with. This is this is Carrie Fisher being on film. This is the last we're going to see her. Maybe they won't be able to do as much as they would have wanted to, obviously, if they had her to film episode 9. But she can go go out in a nice way, I think. And I think that's good for us Star Wars fans, and I think fans of Carrie Fisher in general. Here's a Q&A question. This is from Kevin Rodriguez. What do collectors do once they have gotten most of what they want? I've noticed games at my local store there for months now. Is retro collecting slowing down? It's tough to gauge entirely, but I will say this. For a long while, the demand of retro gamers in terms of the supply out there was not being kept up. Therefore, the the glut of sellers getting into the market and resellers and people establishing stores and eBay stores, um, that filled the hole. Uh, and that was good because then you had people finding the games, uh, delivering the games to these people, um, probably at a much quicker rate. That allowed the hobby to expand. The problem, though, I think the past probably three years, uh, is that the number of sellers proportionally now has outpaced the number of new collectors getting into retro video games and players. So when you go to a convention now, as Ian pointed out before and I, I've brought up, is that when you see multiple sellers with these same rare games for sale and they don't move the entire weekend, uh, that's not a good sign for the hobby. And it's not a good sign that the demand now could be slipping versus the price point. So obviously there could be a, there could be a correction in the market. That's the first thing that can happen in a situation like this. So if you have someone, for example, when you say that your local store has had the same games for months and months, they're going to have to lower the price eventually. If they don't want to take the time to put the game online and put like a high buy it now and wait there forever for it to sell at the price they want it to sell, and you know they have overhead, they have employees to to, uh, to pay, they have a lease on the on the area, etc. They have to make money. They have to sell games. This isn't new merchandise that, you know, if it doesn't move, 
you, you wholesale it, you make take a smaller loss. A lot of times when when these retro stores get going, they have to pay if they have to pay a lot for the games coming in. That means they have to make more to keep the same um, margin, and that's tougher when it's something like a used used games where the price fluctuation can be massive. So if there's a rare game that comes in, say it's I don't know, it's like Bubble Bath Babes, Phoenician game. Say that walks through the door, okay, and they say that okay, online it's going for like say eleven hundred, twelve hundred dollars. They might be willing to pay then a little bit more if they know it's going to sell, or if they think it's going to sell, they'll pay like seven hundred dollars for it, saying, okay, I'll make a $500 profit. But what if there's not a lot of people out there in the market for $1,200 uh, bubble bath babes? What if that's sitting in the store now for a long time? That means then you're going to have to put it on eBay and then you're going to be losing 15% right there, so that $1,200 becomes uh, 1000 only. Or you lower the price locally, and so your profit margin goes down. Or it, or it doesn't sell. I mean, those are those are really your options. So uh, look at it at a, as a, at a large game like that. But now, what if you take that same philosophy and apply it to the mid-range games, like a Contra? So I don't even know what a Contra is going for right now. Let me look that up right now. All right, Contra NES. I always, I always like to use Contra as an example because it's a it's a very common game, but it still goes for uh, money. So you know, so right, so it's trading at thirty-two dollars on eBay. Uh, once twenty eight dollars. Buy it now. Let's see. You can buy it. You you can buy it for like under thirty dollars a contra. So that's probably peaked. Probably peaked. Okay. So, but you still want that for your store. For the games that are coming in, it'll get to a point where the the seller will have to take a more and more of a risk to to buy that inventory because those games won't move as quickly. As they used to. So then, what happens then? Confidence then fades, and then you might have you might have some sellers back out, and they might be doing that right now. They've ha- it happened. It's happened at my flea market, where there used to be, I say, three years ago, four years ago, it peaked, where every week you had five to six uh, retro game sellers, because at the time it was easier to find the stock, and there probably wasn't as many people hunting. But that's when they knew, like, okay. There's still a proliferation of games out there we can get into and make money. Okay? So that's what they did. But what they quickly found was, at that location, since they all had the same games, similar inventory, and they all eBay-type prices or similar prices, the market couldn't sustain the number of sellers in that location. So if you extrapolate uh, that to, say, eBay or the larger United States or the, the retro gaming a hobby at large, I think we're we're approaching that, where you you have as many sellers as we're ever going to need for retro game collecting. We don't need any more sellers. There's big sellers like Lukey Games out there, uh, Sosa Games that are huge enterprises. They get games by the truckload. We don't need more of them. There's so many mom and pop uh, eBay sellers out there now. So if the collectors get the games they want. Like someone like me, or even someone who's been collecting for three, four years, and in that time has gotten even eighty percent of the games they want. There's, there's not, there's not as many people rising up through the ranks to continue that cycle, so that the sellers can make their money to pay a high amount for games that could be common, like a contra again, to continue that cycle to keep it going. 
I think we're at that point where the final turn has might might as the final turn might have already occurred. Not saying there's going to be a crash, but what I'm saying is those sellers might now discover that wow, that Earthbound I have, I could have sold it in a week four years ago. Now that Earthbound at 190 bucks, I got to hold on to that Earthbound for like six months before I have to sell it. So now it becomes a waiting game. Does the buyer then just say, all right, they're going to have to lower the price at some point. They have to move that game. Or, you know, or is the seller going to have to um, use more energy to get the price that they want to quote unquote protect their investment? That's where I think we're, we are heading. And we're already there at this point. Does that make sense? Earthbound. Uh, I can do $155 uh, buy it now or best offer. That was a $250 game a few years ago. Down to $155. That's just one example. Wild Guns has gone down in price. And the reason I know this is because I've been looking at Super Nintendo games <laughs> lately. But, that's a, Kevin, that was a great question. I would ask, ask your local store. Hey, just, uh, hey, if you still have, you know, the same, you know, uh, 200 NES games a year from now, what would you do? Would you put them on eBay and get whatever you can get? Or would you hold out hope that with, with you know, I'm paying for uh, electricity and employees and, le- and you know, the lease for, uh, of my rent. W- what are you going to do at that point if this becomes a larger issue? I don't know. Thank you so much for listening to this CU podcast. Please subscribe if you haven't already on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, uh, Podbean, or your platform of choice. You could rate the podcast or leave a comment that helps give it a boost in the good old uh, algorithms. (laughs) And uh, if you want to directly support Ian and I, it's patreon.com slash CU podcast. If you want to advertise or sponsor the CU podcast, please shoot an email to cupodcast at thepunkeffect.com. I'll get back to you there. I will be at Retropalooza Houston, which is actually in Pasadena. That is the weekend of April 22nd and 23rd. That's at retropaloozahouston.com. I will also be at Retro Spillmessen, um, and that will be May 20. 20th and 21st, and that's in San Fjord, Norway. Go to retrospillmessen.no for more information there. I got the Ultimate NES guide out, the book and the app. Uh, go to ultimatenes.com and you can check out the, the book there, and that's going strong. I also have the, the app, ios.ultimatenes.com If you have an Apple device, or if you have an Android device, you can check it out, screenshots and information at Droid ultimatenes.com and I also have my, my secondary podcast now which is the Not So Common podcast uh, it's, turned, it's sort of turned into an interview show, I've interviewed Frank Mark Bussell from Classic Game Room, Norm the Gaming Historian, uh, Mike Matei from Cinema Massacre, Andre Meadows of Black Nerd Comedy and more and coming up soon will be Brent Black aka Brennel Floss so there you go guys, uh, I hope you had fun Ian toughed it out for a good chunk of this have a great weekend or whatever day of the week it is for you. Have a, have a great Thursday or Tuesday or, you know, I always said Tuesday was the worst day of the week and I still hold to that. Wednesday is my favorite day of the week. I don't know why. Uh, and today's Wednesday. I'm recording on a Wednesday. Maybe that's why. I'm rambling. Uh, <laughs> I'll see you later.